This morning we are in our Bibles in the Psalms, and that is, for me, a relief, which means we're out of the book of Daniel. (laughs) And I'm glad that that is over. And we're going to be in the Psalms for a while, and so the the poets among us will get um, something in their wheelhouse as we look to the the Psalms. If you're not familiar with the Psalms, there are some traditions, um, many of them, I think, appropriately treated as a song book, that it was meant all to be sung. Um, We have lost many of the tunes to it, um, but many people are putting them to their own tunes, and and much like what uh, we've just sung, many of the songs this morning feel psalm-like. And the song that we just sang, Yes, I Will, I think is very appropriate thematically, not necessarily in the words you'll hear in the psalm, but in the disposition of what we were singing. And so if you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 112. Psalm 112 is now one of my favorite psalms. I never really gave it the light of day, the the time of day, um, compared to others. Um, but I've found some things that are really cool about this psalm. And so before we get into it, I want to pray. So as you find your way there, I'm going to petition the Lord. Um, Father, I want to come before you and, and, and just ask for your grace and power. Um, as we've just sung, there's, there's times where we just can choose to, to do what we know we're supposed to do, even though we may not feel it fully in our heart, but we choose oh, as an act of will that you've given us that we want to give you praise. And then there's other times, Lord, where we just feel absolutely depleted. And I can say what I want to do, but that doesn't mean that I can even do it. And your psalm this morning is... One of those things that I say in agreement, this is wonderful and good, but I'm not sure that I have the strength to do it. So if there are others that feel that way this morning, I pray that your grace would be more than sufficient, that you would be where we run, and that you would be the power in us that allows us to choose. And so we praise you that we not only have opportunity for power, but opportunity for choice to do the things that you have made us for. So we ask for your blessing right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Psalms this morning, uh, it is my conviction based on what Jesus said in Luke 24 that all the Psalms are about him. All 150 psalms. And there are many that people say obviously they're about him. And then there are some that are not so obvious. But I still think that they're all about him. And today's is no exception. And so when I come to the psalms, I think of them as ballads for him or about him. And that's what this one is this morning. Psalm 112. I'm going to read it for us today. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. 
Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. And in the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will, be, they will gnash their teeth and waste away. And the longings of the wicked will come to nothing. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I've entitled this message, Eternal Reflection. Now, this may be hard to see at first, but hang with me for a second. Um, the idea in this psalm is one of blessing that transcends generations. We, know the, we all know the expression, like mother, like daughter, or like father, like son. And that statement, that phrase about sort of a generational baton being passed is so old that, and so ancient that no one knows where that sentiment comes from. It just seems to be that's what it means to be human, that in our generations, we pass something down. And usually, when you hear that phrase, like father, like son, more often than not, I hear it in the negative, like the negative aspects that I have, well, that's why their kid's acting that way. Is because he has no self-control, that boy has no self-control, that sort of thing. You know, that we just assume that that's where they get it from. And it's one of those sort of things in psychology of nature versus nurture. Like, this, it's, in their, it, it's in the environment that they grow up in, that that's why they're taking this on. And maybe there's part of their nature that's, that's just the way they are in their disposition because their parents are that way. I hear that phrase usually in connection to the not-so-nice things that our children absorb. But then there are those brief moments of, I, I really, I, I don't know quite how to say it any other way, of this effervescent joy when I can realize that maybe, just maybe, the best of me I can see reflected in my kid. One of the things that I actually got right, I see them doing, and I wonder, where did they learn that? Oh, they might have gotten it from me. There's no greater joy as a parent to see not only excellence in our kids, but a peace that is going to be carried on in goodness even after we're gone. That's actually the topic of the psalm. It may not have come through the first time you read it. The reason why it may not have come through is because we read it in the English, and, and if we read it in the Hebrew, and we don't know Hebrew, and I barely know anything of Hebrew, and and so it's hard for me to uncover these things without some work. 
Our psalm this morning is what we call an alphabetical acrostic. You might be familiar with other parts of Scripture that are famous for being alphabetical acrostics. What that means is that every line of poetry in the, in the psalm starts with a new letter of the alphabet in the, in the original language. The most famous part of Scripture that is this way is Psalm 119, the largest um, longest psalm in the whole Bible, the longest chapter in the whole Bible by verses, this 176 line um, or verse uh, psalm is an alphabetical acrostic in sections. And so every eight verses, it starts with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have alpha, beta, and all of these, um, or, or alpha and bet. And, and so you, you have the, these lines, but here, each line is actually a new one. Another famous part of scripture that's that way, not that you read it a lot, but Lamentations. The whole book of Lamentations is an alphabetical acrostic, um, all six chapters. And, and the reason why the, these craftsmen and craftswomen who write and edit the scriptures do this is when you do something in an acrostic, it's meant to be very memorable. In fact, borderline, especially if you're thinking about singing it, Maybe it was always meant to be helpful to memorize. But here's the kicker. Psalm 112 is not the only alphabetical acrostic in its vicinity. Psalm 111 is also an alphabetical acrostic. And here's this cool thing. And if you have your Bible and you've got your colored pencils and your highlighters and stuff, I I encourage you to go to town with this whether you've got them with you right now or not, because I want to show you something about these two psalms together, because this is, it's hard to understand them unless you see them together. So on the screen, I've got two psalms side by side, and I started doing some highlighting. Now, we're not going to go into Psalm 111 today. But I can tell you that Psalm 111 is about the theme of the Lord's righteousness and his goodness being displayed and his character in what he says and what he does. So he is on display in his word and deed. That's the theme of Psalm 111. But Psalm 111 isn't about him. It's about us. And when you start to look through it, you start to see that what you see in him is also in us. So it starts out, both of them, by praise the Lord. Now, we sang praise the Lord this morning in Hebrew. You may not have known that. It's hallelujah. It's a command, a call to give him praise. If you ever wondered, it's always puzzled me for the longest time. Why is there hallelujah and then alleluia? What's the difference between the two? Hallelujah is a command to praise, and Alleluia is the response of actually doing it. So Alleluia is saying, praise the Lord, like I'm doing it, I'm praising the Lord. Sort of weird when it jumps from one language to another. And then Hallelujah is telling everybody else, praise the Lord. And both of them start out in the Hebrew with Hallelujah, there in verse 1. But then you have the connection. You have, I will extol the Lord, which means I'm going to sort of gush with the good things that he's done. I've experienced them, 
And then you can see it in the second line, great delight is in the people of the things that he has commanded them to do. Then in the blue there, you have greater his works. Sort of, he's going to be majestic and, and, and valuable. And then his people, the children, will be mighty in the land. Sort of, they're going to stand out in their greatness. It continues on. His glorious and majestic are his, his deeds. Same thing. Wealth and riches are in their houses. Not, not they get rich, necessarily, but what it means is that they're flourishing because he flourishes. His righteousness endures forever. Their righteousness endures forever. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, and so are they. They are gracious and compassionate, like father, like son. That's what's going on here. He provides and is generous, and they're generous in verse 5. He remembers his covenant, which means he's faithful to the things he says he would do. And not only will he be remembered by being faithful for his covenant, but down in verse 6, his people will be remembered forever. And the implication is because of that covenant. you like highlighting. There's tons of it in here. He's trustworthy in his precepts. The people are secure, meaning they can find security in what he says, but also they're steadfast in their hearts, meaning they're not wishy-washy in what they say. He is established forever. They are established forever. And so the psalm ends. But then there's a contrast at the very end. He provides redemption. They are generous to the poor. The covenant lasts forever. They proclaim his name, etc. You have all these things. Now what else is going on here in this Psalm 112 in particular is that this is what we call a wisdom psalm. Now, I've talked about wisdom from the book of Daniel here before and I want to actually get your input on this. What does it mean to be wise. And so it's not a, an open, open-ended question. What does it mean to be wise? How would you describe being wise? Because this is a wisdom psalm. That's the category that it falls into. And so it's trying to convey a bit of wisdom. Anybody? Okay, you have understanding for sure. Okay. Okay, so we've got understanding, we've got knowledge and application, and to do it in a way that's life giving. Why did you add the life-giving? Because you can have knowledge and you can use that for good, but you can also burn that and use it for your own gain. Okay. So like you're giving it to others and you're saying that you're going to focus others up or protect others. Okay. So wisdom in action is always going to provide a benefit for someone. Okay. 
That's actually right there on the screen where it begins. If you, if you know the Proverbs, the Proverbs are wisdom literature. They start, how do, what's the beginning of the fear of the Lord according to Proverbs? Or, the, the beginning of, sorry, I got ahead of myself there. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where the psalm begins. And so it's a trust. That's really what fearing the Lord means is, a, is not um, uh, this uh, sort of, I'm going to cower in fear before him, but I have a healthy respect of, of knowing this is where things start. And so you're right there. I want to highlight a few things about this psalm this morning as we work our way through. These verses on the beginning here are wisdom for generations. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. We begin our look in the psalm with a hallelujah, a call to praise him. And after this call to praise, then comes the blessed are those who fear the Lord. What part of scripture does that sound like? Besides other psalms? Sermon on the Mount. What part of the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. It's a Beatitude. It's a Beatitude. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who inherit the earth. Jesus said those things, and he was copying the Psalms in the way that they say. So blessed are those who fear the Lord. In other words, blessed are those who are wise. And the blessed here... we struggle with that word a little bit too. Sometimes I hear commentators will say it just means happy. And, and I think it can. It can mean happy. But it's not the normal Hebrew word for blessed here that we most often find in the Psalms. We hear happy or content in that word. But what it does mean here is that there's this lifestyle of this Psalm is urging us towards. Sort of blessed is the person, as we will see, who chooses this kind of lifestyle of integrity. And if they do choose that lifestyle, it will result in a kind of wholeness for them, a shalom, a blessedness. Shalom means peace in Hebrew. It means that there's an inward and outward way that we might grow that marks our journey towards wholeness. That's the kind of healthy living that we're putting it here. Because... I don't know if you felt this way when I read the psalm. Because it is a wisdom psalm, which all automatically puts it out there like, if I'm not feeling wise today, then I'm never going to reach this psalm. And there are some people that I've studied this one with now already who immediately they just felt beat up by the psalm. Just the, the, they read it and they're like, well, I don't measure up there and there and there and there. And you go down through all ten verses and they're like, well... That made me feel a whole lot worse about myself this morning because I'm not doing any of that. And that's a really easy thing to do when you come to wisdom literature that's telling you what life was meant to be and then you look in the mirror and it's not reflecting. And that's really easy. And you can come like that song that we sang and say, yes, I will, I'm just going to do it. And then, like I said, sometimes I can say, yes, I will, and... And then I don't even have the energy some days to say, yes, I will, let alone do it. And I feel like a failure. And it's easy to do in, a, in, a, in looking at Scripture this way. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, though. It's got to start there. 
Blessed are those who understand that life begins with relationship. By calling on the Lord, that's his covenant name, by describing him that way, we're automatically assuming that the only way I can have this type of wisdom is within some sort of context of relationship. I've got to get it through relationship. It's not going to be just through my own effort. And I've got to know him. Because remember, the idea of the two psalms together is father and son. That's, that's a familial connection. If I don't have a connection with him, that I don't have access to all the good things that he's implying I could have. So it's got to start with relationship. And because I have this healthy respect for him, then his burdens and his commands, while they might be difficult to follow, they could actually be delights. They could actually be something I could enjoy. They could provide me with the safe place to play and operate. God's people delight in his commands because they believe that he has given us these instructions to enrich our lives, not to make them harder. And so that if we could follow them, then we could be more successful than we would ever be without knowing his instruction. This is the wisdom of the psalm. And so the instruction here is set to help us see God's created order, how to live wisely in line with it. And that's why at the end, the wicked who choose not to, it's disaster for them. But the wise lifestyle has an outcome that is not just limited to our generation, but even limited, or it goes on to those who come after us. And I think that's one of the coolest things to start, is to think that actually, if I could do something right, my wife and I were just talking about this this morning, of how do we, how do we encourage our kids to be um, confident? I was one of the most timid kids I still I get butterfly I get butterflies standing up in front of you guys. I still do it. I think I fake it better than I used to. And I was so timid as a kid. And then I don't know when it happened, but sometime this switch flipped and I felt like I had this confidence, like I felt like I could do things. I could step out on my own. And I'm not sure that there's any remedy of saying if I do A, B, and C, that my kids are going to be A, B, and C. But there is some type of cumulative effect in their life where some of the good things that we are doing on repetition do seep in. They do get in the pores. They do get down to the core of where they are. And that's purely by grace because I don't think anyone knows exactly how it happens but yet it still happens. That God understands how it happens. It could be passed on. And it has to be passed on. The only way that it could be is that it has to be something that I would do in, in, in public. It can't be just a private devotion. Our children or the spiritual children of our community will never know the delights of enjoying God's wholeness unless they see it in our walk and our talk. So it has to be public. But it must be expressed of how much we might delight in God's goodness to us, how we find wholeness in his design for this world, rather than the disorder that our world promises and promotes. 
More than telling kids that, that we re, what we reject about the world, we must tell them what we accept about God's design. What is good and right and positive needs to be shared and passed on because th- that integrity needs to be highlighted as physical and spiritual parents. I think that was the, some of the successes of people that, in the community of faith that I grew up in. Um, while there was an awful lot of them telling me what they didn't like, and that rung true so, so well, that at least there were others that said, this is what's good. That's what I'm holding on to today. Because it's usually the stuff that we're correct on is the stuff that we value, not the stuff that we rail against. In verses 3 and 4, there's a, a fortune and a misfortune. The psalm gets a little more specific with a contrast. First, the fortune. We see this lifestyle of integrity comes with it, this, an opportunity for wealth and riches. But this isn't the prosperity gospel. Following the Lord doesn't mean that you get rich necessarily. In Hebrew poetry, um, we find figures of speech, common characteristics, and one such characteristic of this type of poetry is what we call parallelism. And so it'll say something, and then it'll say it again in a slightly different way to give it emphasis. Hebrew poetry repeats a concept on the next line, either to compare or contrast. And here in verse 3, wealth and riches in the houses is further described as righteousness that goes on forever. So what's here is not really about getting rich, but having this wealth of of being right with God. And so we take this fortune, this wealth, to be something far greater than just having material blessing or being rich. The wealth is more of a, a quality of relationship that goes beyond life, a depth of blessing, of being part of a community of people who value and treasure each other. And and in that, in verse 4, it says that these wise people are gracious and compassionate and righteous. And if that doesn't ring true, I want to refresh your memory. That's the way Moses describes God in Exodus. When, When God tells Moses, you know what? I think, Moses, the people who are made the golden calf, they just won't get it. I'm going to start over with you. And it was a test for Moses. And Moses says, wait a minute, why... What would everyone think about you? And he says, what does everyone think about me? And Moses says, well, that you're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And God tells Moses, that's what I hoped you'd say. Because that's who I am. And that's my character that's now being shown in my people. With that wealth comes a generosity and a security. We come to another comparison. God's people of integrity are people who are generous. Their love is described in, in words that are used like, like a motherly kind of love. As a guy, though, I have to pause and say, well, I'm not quite sure that I understand the motherly kind of love. It's been a while, um, and I don't have the capacity for it like half of us do. Let's think of how a good mother acts towards her kids, though. A good mother sacrifices for her children. She works long hours, 
tirelessly at times to make sure her kids' needs are met. And sometimes that's both inside the home and outside the home. She sacrifices her own body to give children life. Not only that, she crafts and creates and and nurtures an environment for her kids to grow and develop in. And yeah, I'm talking about an ideal. Nobody does this perfectly. But these are qualities that ring true with what good mothers do. That's the idea of this nurturing environment that continues as a metaphor for God's people. The lifestyle of integrity nurtures them. It crafts relationships around them that nurture them. These relationships are built on doing what is right and fair and just. And when people have justice as a foundational characteristic of their relationships, they have an opportunity to grow and even to flourish. But how does that justice develop? It comes from people first being, uh, first willingly saying that they would serve others with generosity, with time and resources, like, like how officers of the law can serve and protect a community and allow justice to be one of the pillars that supports growth and development in that community. It gives them an opportunity to do things. And all of this is summarized in verse 6 as a, as a lifestyle of integrity, fearing the Lord, delighting in his commandments, producing an environment where people feel stable and secure. And they feel stable even with threats that come around them. The psalmist turns to another contrast in verse 7. While stability is surely what God desires, that doesn't ignore the fact that we live in a fallen world and there's instability all around us. I mean, you can just watch the State of the Union address to know how unstable things are. And if you don't like what I have to say here this morning, just come up and rip this up when I'm done. Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. While evil is present and visible in our world, we should not let that be the focus of our attention. The presence of evil doesn't deny the way God created the world in the first place. With order and opportunity and wholeness, that's what he's shooting for, and that's what even some of our best leaders will talk about from time to time, even though I'm not sure how any of them know how to get there. But the real remnants of the old order remain, and they still provide an opportunity And so in verse 7, it's God's righteousness that God's people are choosing to employ in their life. And that kind of life of integrity which provides them with something to trust in despite the threats that are around them. And because of that righteousness, God's people believe that they have a future beyond this life. Because of that righteousness, they have something or rather someone to trust in despite the bad news or the the evil tidings that frequently they encounter like tragedy or suffering or or malice or other types of pressure and threats that that are keeping um, us from flourishing. Our stability is based not upon circumstances or even uh, our performances, but instead it's based upon the stable nature of God himself. And so in verse 8, we trust in the Lord because we believe that when he says he will do something, he will follow through and bring that truth to its final completion. So for example, when I encounter malicious gossip about myself, 
I trust not in what that person may say or in what I've heard that someone else has said, but I trust in the identity that God has given me. Lies can't destroy what he has built. Now, I know that I don't live up to that order and idea all the time, but I know that's his goal for me, so I don't trust in my own performance. I trust in his. I trust in his divine purposes being realized. Continuing to contribute to a healthy community of faith allows one another to encourage each other to trust in his loyalty above all things. Therefore, we have hope. And so the psalm ends with his character in us, his conduct being shown through us and our destiny with him. Verse 9 again reminds us of generosity as God's people provide for others. But what this ultimately points to is that God's character is at work in his people. He is the one who graciously provides redemption for his people and that gives them an opportunity to have a fresh start to overcome the effects of sin and suffering. God's people generously provide for those around them, those who have been broken, who have endured the chaos of this world. They give them an opportunity for a fresh start. This could be offering just a little bit of kindness, a little bit of support, maybe some resources, maybe some time. And in this way, God's people take on his character As he meets other people where they are at, they do the same. The phrase that is most commonly used to describe God's character, his righteousness becomes their righteousness. And so lastly, verse 10 gives us this sober glimpse of the destiny of those who choose to go away from everything we've just talked about. The wicked are fleeting They melt away along with their desires, never able to grasp what they so desperately want. They feverishly try to grasp things that are fleeting, like youth or fame or material wealth or status, even power. But in contrast, the people of God, the people who fear the Lord, who are blessed with a lifestyle of integrity, they endure forever with honor and worth. And in this last verse, we see the destiny of both. But what are we to make of this whole psalm? Because as I said, it all sounds wonderful, but yet so out of reach at times. Even the most faithful believer, I think, has to admit with honesty that they fall short of these character qualities probably more often than they would want to admit. So what is the psalm telling us about our life with God, our destiny, our pursuits? Now, as I've said before, I think that this psalm is all about Jesus, and I haven't mentioned him yet. The gospel answer is that he is the God-man. He is the one who is both fully like us and fully like God the one who reflects God's likeness perfectly. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. And so while in full humanity and in whom the Father is fully pleased, he's the one who fulfills this psalm. And then I have to remember, 
that by faith I'm united with him. That's what I professed in my baptism. Do you not know that, that, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were buried with him so that we too might be raised and walk in newness of life just like him? We are eternally connected to him. And so when it says that this is the lifestyle or the end for the righteous, I know that it's the end for him. I just don't know how I'm going to get there, but it's like he's my tugboat and I'm connected and he's going to tow me along with him. I don't understand fully how he's going to make me into this image, but I am going to be into this image. I am being conformed into his image by grace. That's what the gospel says. And because I am eternally united with him, I can have this kind of conduct and character in me. And so I can actually shout hallelujah. I can actually praise God because I can eternally practice this kind of character and this conduct because I already see it revealed in him. I can emulate Christ's character so that future generations are blessed by him to do the same. What a blessing it is to know that we have the potential to pass on his character by demonstrating it to the next generation of believers or or our own kids. We can practice his righteousness and trust in his provision regardless of circumstances. He has graciously granted us his righteousness. That's what the gospel says. Is not only was my sin imputed to his account, but his righteousness was credited to mine. I didn't earn it, but by faith I get it. And then I see it start to make its work apparent in me. I can savor some type of eternal, internal peace through trust in him despite my circumstances. doesn't matter what the threats are out there. I can enjoy his inherent grace for security as we, we practice that type of lavish generosity and fairness with others. It's the times when I feel least connected to him that I also feel like I have absolutely nothing to give. People are, are calling me on the phone, they ask me for something, and there are times where I'm like, I don't want to answer that because I know what's coming on the other end. It's an ask, and I know that I have nothing to give. And what's my problem in that moment? My, my problem is not the realization that I have nothing to give because that's accurate. My problem is, is that I'm not connected to the one who has more than enough to give. That's my problem. And so maybe I need to call them back after I've spent some time with him and reminded myself of the connection. Before I got up here to preach, I was thinking the same thing. You know, you guys could tell that I wasn't feeling well last week. And, it, you know, I was just like, yeah, wait, he was, he was, something wrong with him up there. You know, you know I don't know what it, what, it, what it was, quite, but, you know, there's a bug or something. And I feel fine this morning. And if there still looks like there's something wrong with me, well, that's just on me. But... I feel fine. But spiritually, I felt absolutely wiped today. Like, I don't, have, I don't know how I'm supposed to get up here and preach. I don't know how I'm supposed to. Like, I'm excited in a nerdy sort of way about my colored pencils. But that's the only excitement going on 
here. That's not enough to communicate God's word. That's not enough to proclaim him through the scriptures. What's my problem? I'm not connected to the one I'm talking about. And I'm trying to do it all on my own. And I can proclaim, yes, I will, till the cows come home, but unless I'm connected to the one that I'm proclaiming, then that eventually is going to dry up as well. I have to be connected to him. And that is an infinite source of power. Because we're not talking about just a man. We're talking about God. That's the wisdom of the psalm. Because he is the one who not only died on the cross, he is the one who right now holds all things together by his might. The one who is remaking heaven and earth in his image. This one day will be a psalm that just doesn't look forward into the future. It will describe his kingdom, his reality, his order, the way he meant for it to be in the first place. And so I can honestly say hallelujah and praise his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I am enabled to proclaim you and not myself. Um, that, that there's potential for an eternal reflection in me, even though I don't feel at the moment like I reflect it at all. But it's never, it's never based on me. It's never based on us. It's always based on you. Uh, we are saved in the beginning and all the way through by grace through faith. And it is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that we can only boast in you. We pray this all in your name.